You're listening to the Electric Sheep magazine podcast. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is the monthly podcast to accompany the online film website electricsheepmagazine.com. In this episode, to tie in with Electric Sheep's September theme of memory, I'm talking to a pair of cultural commentators on the themes of philosophy and murder. Later in the show, I'm talking to film critic and historian Kim Newman about the recent DVD release of the Edgar Wallace Mysteries, a series of films made in the 1960s as second features in Britain that were better known under their collective title when packaged as a TV series. Before that, I'm talking to German-American filmmaker M.A. Littler in a Q&A recorded after a screening of his film, The Kingdom of Survival, at last year's Raindance Film Festival. The Kingdom of Survival is a documentary about scepticism in modern America, and the filmmaker travels around the country talking to cultural critics, philosophers and writers, looking at the current debate of scepticism in modern America. To give you a flavour of the film, here's an extract from the trailer. When you get elected to office, you have power. And power means you can tell people what to do. Nobody sees that... uh... Capitalism is an extractive wine press. It presses money out of people. Money is an intriguing concept, by the way, uh, as a historian. We can always tell the heart of a society by looking at its largest monuments. In New York, of course, they were the World Trade Center, the World Trade Towers, a, frankly, cathedral to wealth. And no capitalist system has ever survived. It would self-destruct in five minutes. Cool your right kind of living Rifle me in this burned out, broke down society. Live my life alone and be free without a wonderful ride. I don't want You spoke in the film about how you were initially inspired by a quote from Hamlet to go on this journey, but the more specific idea of when you actually started making the film, when did that journey come about? Well, I guess I've always been a troublemaker, you know. And when I came across the transcendentalist movement in the United States in the uh, form of Emerson and Thoreau, I really liked their idea of civil disobedience. I liked the idea that uh, you have to shape your country. You can't just complain about those in powers ruining your life. So if you want to be a true citizen and if you want to be a true individual, you have to take responsibility, and sometimes that means being... Naughty, as you say in this country. So I guess I was just being naughty. I guess I was just sick and tired. Uh, when it comes to the status quo, I'm sick and tired of mobile phone stores and all this gentrification, assimilation, political corruption, terrible press. And uh, the wife said, well, if you're going to complain about it, then why don't you do something about it? And this is what a filmmaker does. You turn your complaining into civil disobedience. Some of the people that you interviewed... Actually, can we turn around, because this feels kind of weird. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> you watched it, so I think I should be looking at you guys. Some of the people you interviewed for the film seemed like obvious choices, like Noam Chomsky, but when it came to coming up with a list of a balance of different voices, how hard was it to get the right kind of people? I mean, how much research did you do, or did you actually have an idea beforehand, actually, I know of these people and I want to track them down and see if they'll appear in my movie? Well, I guess in a way, the, the, the process of the whole movie was sort of kicked off when I started reading, like seriously reading. Sure. So I started out with like the Beat Generation and noir, crime writing and all that kind of stuff, and then at some point I realized 
that uh, you have to sort of, you know, if you want to be a writer and filmmaker, and I've criticized the independent film movement for that, and I'm very outspoken. I don't think the majority of films today are good. I think that independent film is in a terrible crisis. The reason is they've got no philosophical training. Their films are about nothing. And I think that you at some point have to uh, read the people who came before you to learn, to show respect, and to understand where your culture comes from. Uh, cinematically, philosophically, artistically, whatever. There's a long story before we showed up. And I don't see a lot of respect coming from youngsters nowadays for that. So basically, when I started reading, I think in the back of my mind, I always knew I was going to at some point deal with the issues raised in the film. Now, as to the concrete protagonist that we chose, uh, well, Gnome is like the calling card for a very simple reason. Like, let's face it, when you make an indie flick, you need to have some name power. It's just the way it is. People can tell you otherwise, it's a lie. We got into a big festival because of Gnome. That's just the way it is. Now, was Noam the most per, uh, important person for me? No, he wasn't. A guy like Will Taylor is more important to me. Noam's been in other films, but he was the guy who, who was a door opener. He was also a guy who analyzed the society we lived in, uh, who showed some alternatives, and also gave the film sort of the intro mm. upon which the others could then build. There was a list of overall 35 people who we wanted to contact, uh, black leaders, Latino leaders, way more women, you know, and ultimately the film consists of the people who ended up talking to us. We did exclude two episodes, uh, one with a Michigan militia, a right-wing Christian militia in the United States, uh, which was on BBC and CNN and all that, and we got fooled uh, into thinking that these guys were serious. These guys are not a threat to national security. These guys are jokers. Mm-hmm. And a gentleman who was the chief prosecutor of the Guantanamo trial. He prosecuted uh, a bunch of American soldiers, and both episodes were left out because these people were just insincere, and uh, there was just no room for them in this film. So basically, a long list that was then simmered down to uh, the protagonists that you see on screen, and each protagonist fulfilling a different function. Because both uh, Noam and one of the other people you spoke to have a slightly apocalyptic view of the future, that you know they believe that we're living in the end times because of overpopulation and because of people's inability to challenge the society they live in. But the overall effect of the movie seems to be actually quite positive. Would you say that you're an optimist, or did this film make you more of an optimist than you were? Well, I mean, I'm German, so <laughs> I'm apocalyptic by nature. But the thing is that I think it's really easy to drift off into catastrophism, so everything's fucked. Well, it is, but it's been all fucked before, and, you know, things still went on. Coming from a country that didn't do so well and made some really bad decisions uh, 65, 60 years ago, uh, looking at my country now, it's a lot better than it was back then. So I hate to use that twat Obama as a, as a reference point because I can't stand the guy. I just think he's just as bad as all the others that came before him just a palmonger like all the other guys. But I think that um, we, we tend to always look at history, you know, what happened the last five, ten years. But in actual fact, every serious historian will look at 50 years, 100 years, and will then analyze. You don't analyze every weekend when you're in the pub saying, well, this is how the world changed. It'll take some time. And I think what we're experiencing now, especially in the United States, a country that I'm very, very familiar with, because I spent a lot of time there, and we just returned from the United States, is... We made this film a year ago, people were asleep, seriously asleep. Twelve months later, people have woken up, you know. It takes sort of hokey American kind of shapes, and everyone's kind of laughing because it's a little bit hokey. 
But the fact is the reactions have been incredible. And the reason is because people now realize that they're being fucked. They're being sold down the river. So the awakening is taking place. Where that will lead, I have no idea. But I'm definitely not apocalyptic. Because if the awakening has begun, at least there's hope for, for improvement. Yeah, because in the, the last week or so alone, there have been these anti-Wall Street demonstrations, which certainly, as a, a British reader of these events, seem to be fairly unprecedented in recent American history. And because, like you said, you know, it, it almost feels like there is a time of change, were you getting that from the various screenings you've had in America recently? Well, you can only rape a population to a certain extent. I mean, you've had Maggie Thatcher, the Iron Maiden, right? <laughs> Uh, you have punk rock, right? There's only so many minds you can close, so many people you can send off to the boozer to compensate for the fact that they don't have a life. At some point, the people will fight back. Uh, being German, I'm not exactly one of those guys who's like, it'll be all great. I don't think it will be. I think the revolution, for example, in, in, Central, uh, in North Africa and uh, in the Middle East, I think a lot of those will end up really disappointing. I think America has a chance because... Um, their their history is sort of a, a sort of a, a maverick frontier kind of kind of story. I think if they start to educate themselves, they get a real chance of turning that ship around. But that ship is seriously in in, in, in disarray. Uh, a few uh, few thousand people in Wall Street will not make a difference. It will have to be a, a way larger movement than that. And if that takes the shape of the Tea Party, then we have a problem because they may criticize the ones in power, but they are funded by those in power. It has to be real people. And, and I'm a firm advocate of uh, a multitude of small solutions. I don't believe in the big, I will crash Wall Street and that's going to solve everything. I think people have to take responsibility over their individual fates, the fates of their families and their neighborhoods. And I think if that happens on a larger scale, that will create true change. And, and the Q&As you've had in America recently, do you feel that actually there is a generation that's going to do something about their problems on at least a personal level? Well, let's say one thing. The Q&As were really overwhelming, but the average age of the audience was between 65 and 105. Really? The, the young generation in the United States is too busy mourning the death of... What's that fellow? The Apple fellow that just passed away? <laughs> Steve Jobs. I don't care about that guy one bit. So if anyone wants to talk about that guy... I'm not going to join in. The youngsters are too busy consuming. They're too busy playing with little mobile phones, and that's fine. But it's their country, and they will they will inherit a country that was better than than what they're turning it into now. You know, if you take a look at the film deals with that, the '60s and '70s, there was a process of true national awakening worldwide. You know, not just in the United States. And for a brief moment in time, real change was possible. Uh, it can't be that it's up to the baby boomers to change the world. They're done. They're going to kick the bucket soon. It's going to be up to the youngsters. You just said that you were concerned about kids spending too much time playing with their gadgets. And indeed, uh, the last guy you interviewed said the same. Um, but one sort of theme that seems to be missing from your movie that seems to be, uh, at least in, in Europe, something that we're actually quite interested in, is how perhaps social networking can empower people to make a difference. Do you, are you interested in that at all, or do you think it's just a passing fad? No, the internet's here to stay. Mm. I mean, that's a fact. Oh, no, sure, but the fact that maybe social networking can make Well, it. I mean, it's, as a filmmaker who's got no, no money to, to uh, go through fancy PR campaigns, needless to say, we, we use it. We shamelessly exploit the fucker. I mean, I don't care about Facebook or anything like that. I just shamelessly plug our movies, mm. you know? Do I think I'll find real friends on Facebook? No. 
You know, do I think that they will long-term further revolutionary process? I don't. People have to meet face to face. The downside to Facebook and all that is that it does not compensate for the actual getting together of people in one space, like today or like during our tour or when we snuck off to the pub 20 minutes ago. You know, that's just that's human and that's real. Everything else else is virtual. And I think that uh, Dr. Mark Robello points it out in the film. He talks about the monetary system, but if our life becomes too virtual, mm. you know, we we lose humanity. You know, we don't only use, lose an idea of what our life is, what our life really is, or what currency really is. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And it's a very simple tool to uh, to control people. So I think it's a mixed blessing. I think it's great that you can get in touch with like-minded people, but then go meet them in the pub, meet them in the town hall. You know, have sex. Does anyone from that? I don't know. You know, do those kind of things and, and have a real human interaction. If the internet starts that process off, all well and good. But it can't be solely virtual. Mm. One contrast you make in the film is the difference between faith in religion and faith in existing political and social structures. It's surprising almost, actually, that a lot of people in the film manage to be Christian and still be sceptical of modern life. Was that something that surprised you? Because I think as a European audience, would expect all of the uh, more enlightened people to be atheist or agnostic. Well, whether it's hardcore Christians or hardcore atheists, hardcore left-wingers or right-wingers, they all adhere to a doctrinal system. Mm. And they're just as bad. I mean, these guys are not true skeptics. If you blindly believe one thing, then I'm sorry, I can't take you serious. The fact is we're confused creatures, our entire species, our history is confused. Mm. Uh, our quest for knowledge has always been messy. It's not clean. If anyone gives me a clean answer, I'll laugh at their face. Like I, like I say in the film, I mean, I'm an agnostic, you know. But you're wearing a cross. Yeah, because I'm a lapsed Christian. To remind myself <laughs> of the fact that I'm lapsed, I shall bear the cross to remind myself. But thanks for pointing that out. Uh, no, but I, seriously, I mean, I think like uh, like it's being stated in the film, you know, it should be an open-ended quest for knowledge, and we should not be afraid to contradict ourselves. You know, what this lady may have believed yesterday, she may not believe in two weeks' time. And she's got every right to, to, to change her mind. New information, new experience... And I think what's been happening over the last 50 years is we're sort of being fed this sort of uh, pre-manufactured kind of culture. So you can either be a Christian uh, or an atheist. You can be a Democrat or a Republican. Well, perhaps I choose to be all of those things and even more, you know. So, you know, I guess the, the message being there's a lot of um, perspectives out there, but the most important perspective is the one that you create yourself. Sure. Uh, we've got about five minutes for questions, so if anyone in the audience has anything I'd like, I'll ask the director to stick your hand up and uh, be as loud as you can. I've gone, uh, having gone through this kind of process, you've got a clear idea now about what direction you're going to take for the next one. Well, I kind of keep joking. I've said in various Q&As that it's very difficult to make a film like this and then make a romantic comedy, so that's what's not going to happen. So whatever I do in the future will, will deal solely with, with the human condition and the progress or decline of man. There's nothing else, no other story to, to, to tell. Uh, frankly, that's sort of what I'm missing in independent film, you know, like, hey, I don't care about your grandma baking cookies or your grandma in a gorilla outfit or your friends who can't get laid. I don't care about that. There's bigger issues, and it's time that filmmakers take the responsibility again and to portray the world we live in. I would be... Um kind of interested if you kind of expanded a little bit on your ideas of 
you know, you suggested you couldn't negate the power of social networking. And whilst you must also recognize that not many people have the opportunity to interact socially, they don't travel the world doing Q&As, they're not able to make films. And, um, you know, I just couldn't quite get how you don't see that there's so much more opportunity to convey a lot of the ideas. I mean, you know, you've seen it say Muslim Networks, and, you know, there's a lot of very powerful uh, ideas that have been galvanized entirely on the internet. Well, I, I tend to make films from my own perspective. I, I don't like liars, and I, I know that I'm intellectually limited. So I can only talk about my own personal perspective. You may know a lot more about this than I do. As a matter of fact, when the trailer went online about six months ago, we got confronted with a lot of information regarding the Internet and how to use the Internet, and quite frankly, I'm pretty ignorant to the whole thing. Right? I'm just not an expert. If you see me using emails, my cameraman is here, he laughs every day. I can't use a mobile phone properly. I have no idea. This Facebook thing, I, you know, I, I try, I fail, I try, I get frustrated. So I'm not really an expert on social media or the internet per se. So I do see a lot of potential. Uh, a friend of mine, Omar Sharif's godson, uh, subsidized a sort of Twitter-like kind of thing in Egypt, pumped a lot of money into it, said it helped the revolution. I'll have to take his word for it. I simply do not know. And instead of making up an answer now, I'd rather just say I just don't have enough background information on the powers of the internet. I can only speak from my own personal experience. I mean, something I was going to add was that that is a, a type of rhetoric that has been used recently, that they, all the various revolutions in the Arab Spring were facilitated by social networking, but from an outside perspective, you don't know how true that is. But as a Londoner, uh, there were riots in this city in August which was supposedly organised on one uh, networking, on one um, type of network run by um, Blackberry. But then the next day, Twitter helped facilitate people uh, pick up their brushes and clean the streets. So I think it's both a force for good and a force for bad, depending on how people use it and who uses it. Well, that's the history of man. Take nuclear power, take everything. We're, we're, we're a genius and flawed and very contradictory species. It's never been any different, you know? It's like when you make a film, you try, you fail, you try again, you fail again. Sometimes you fail in, in a more profound way than others, other times, but uh, it's just an ongoing human experiment. And that applies to our lives as much as to our relationships and also to the technologies we invent. So why would the internet be any different? Okay, well, one more there. Oh, yeah, go. Fair. I, I just have uh, something to <clears throat> touch on of what you said of, of the contradictory nature of human beings. And I, I think the the film, in a very broad sense, emphasized that um, the, the battle for ideas uh, throughout human history is very contradictory. So when something like a capitalist idea grabs hold, um, it lasts for a few hundred years, we're not sure if, if that's the right path, right? So you have to reassess everything. Um, I just wanted to ask you, um, after all, all of this discovery of, of the human sort of nature, is do you think it's more important for each person to find like this I guess the, the spirituality in their own lives or or do we ought to um, take action to make sort of the better uh, the better world work well you're talking about a collective versus an individual kind of approach right so what do we do do we explore ourselves and our conscience and consciousness or do we go for collective action 
The answer is very simple, it's both. I think the key line in the film is, own your own consciousness. That is the very beginning of everything. No Steve Jobs, no Apple, no Walmart, no McDonald's, none of that. You yourself, get that straight first. What happens then is a bonus. If you can find like-minded people, save a bunch of children, I think it's wonderful. If you can grow veggies and not eat that polluted rubbish they feed you at Tesco, I'm all for it. But the first thing is, you know, find a little man, a little girl inside yourself and, and nurture that, you know. It makes you less likely to be corrupted, it makes you more independent, and empowers you. If you then can inspire others, all the better. Want to make a movie? Go do it. But you start with your own consciousness. And that then sort of funnels outward, all the better. So, so the, sorry, just as a quick follow-up to that, then um, what if that sort of inner voice is telling you to be like the Steve Jobs? Like, what if, what if simply that is your... Then your inner voice is evil and wrong. <laughs> but, so that's, that's what I wanted to just get at. No, of course. I mean, I'm just kidding. I mean, yeah, I guess the dude acted on his instinct. Yeah. I just can't stand him. But I'm sure you couldn't stand me. It's, 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 it's all right. Well, thanks a lot, because this was one of the few good interviews. Most interviews are kind of stupid, so thank you. For more information about M.A. Littler's The Kingdom of Survival, where you can download the film or buy the DVD, please go to slowboatfilms.com. Next, here's my interview with Kim Newman about the recently released Edgar Wallace Mysteries. To give you a taste of the Edgar Wallace Mysteries, here's the opening of The Clue of the Twisted Candle, featuring Edgar Wallace regular Bernard Lee, who would later find fame as M in the 007 movies, and David Knight. I'm sorry about that. Now at last, let me get you a drink. Edelstein door? Yes. Solid steel? Very solid. But quite often. So you lift this bar and let it drop. And you're completely cut off from the outside world unless somebody bores a hole through the wall. Very simple, very efficient, very necessary. I was brought up in a very un-English way, in very un-English places. I took part in business and politics. But that was a number of years ago. But I still receive messages of their intention. They will not rest until they have killed me. You mean they write to you through the post, you mean? I still receive their messages. That is why I had this room built. I don't trust even that door. That is why I asked for a direct line. If need be, I can take refuge here until your people arrive. One of the reasons why I'm talking to you is because you're a fan of the author and the series. Uh, yes, I am, yeah. I, I mean, I think Edgar Wallace is one of those people who's fascinating rather than good. <laughs> uh, and I think that the, the films made from his works are in many ways much more uh, interesting to read, to, to look at these days than his books are to read because they're a bit... Um, annoying in some ways, <laughs> in some ways. but uh, it, no, he's a, a big and a forgotten sort of British franchise, mm. um, and I'm always interested in, in uh, exhuming stuff like this from the past. <laughs> well, it seems astonishing that he was so prolific, and yet now hardly anyone knows of him. Yes, I mean, one, one assumes that all the huge, um, big best-selling names of today sort of shudder at the thought of somebody <laughs> like Edgar Wallace, who was um, so dominant as a writer in, in the 1920s. Um, 
I, I can't even think of anybody today who, you know, maybe someone like Stephen King, you know, mm. would, would so be their genre um, that, you know, it, it would seem to be unthinkable that there weren't. And in fact, he's still very, as, as everybody said, he's like David Hasselhoff, he's still very popular in Germany. Mm. Um, <laughs> but he's not particularly well remembered in Britain, maybe because. Um, one level, we were a bit embarrassed by some of his attitudes. I mean, they are, um, like a lot of 1920s, 30s thrillers, you, um, there are sort of some engaging and endearing stereotypes, and there are some really unpleasant ones that we'd rather not think we ever thought like that. Mm. Well, I guess that comes from the fact that before he became a fiction writer, he was a journalist who reported from the colonies and went to work for the Daily Mail. He, I mean, his first sort of really successful uh, fictions were the Sanders of the River stories, which are um, sort of colonial dramas, very, very sub-Kipling. Um, and yeah, he, he was a man of empire um, and, and sort of seemed to believe in the, uh, the, the, the Britain's civilising mission to uh, parts of the world where on the whole they'd rather we went away <laughs> and uh, subsequently we did. Mm. I suppose if people have heard of Edgar Wallace, it's because of his association with King Kong. Absolutely, it's odd, isn't it? Because that was something, for many years, it was said he just had a credit on King Kong because he was contracted to write it and then died before he did. But actually, someone later uh, recently turned up um, the treatment he wrote, and it is very close to, to the finished film. So hmm. he um, was greatly influential on... Um, mentioned his popularity in Germany and I guess before the release of this TV series now one way that people may have uh, experienced his mysteries were as the criminy uh, adaptations in the 1960s yeah. Yeah. This, this particular run of British films and the German run of uh, the, the creamies which were made by several studios in Germany um, they were at exactly the same time and the rights must have been split because they <laughs> um, and there's this vision of the world which is half 
Gaslight and Cobblestones and Jack the Ripper and half mini skirts and swinging <laughs> London. Yeah, which it's sort of how the Germans like to think of Britain, but it's not at all like the Britain we actually know. Whereas these British movies, they're very like that because they're sort of cheap. Mm. They go out on locations. They they show you if you if you want to see what Britain really looked like in the mm. early nineteen sixties, as opposed to this sort of yeah, Beatles-influenced vision we have of it. All the drab horrors of suburban Britain are in the Edgar Wallace Presents mysteries. You know, mm. the, 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 the horrible pubs and the, <laughs> and the, and the, the boxy cars and the you know, depressed suburban bank managers plotting to murder their wives. All that, which, you know, which dragged on from you know, the austerity years into, into the 1960s is still there. The only really cool, funky aspect of these films is the, is the theme tune. <laughs> it's interesting, though, comparing the German and British adaptations, whether it's national interests or censorship or budget, but the, the German adaptations seem to play up the more lurid aspects, while the British ones seem to be more concerned with being traditional murder mysteries. Oh, absolutely. It's odd. And it's odd because Anglo Amalgamated, who made the British series, had made Peeping Tom and Horrors mm. of the Black Museum. Horrors of the Black Museum is almost about Edgar Wallace mm. um, and Circus Horrors, these very lurid, colourful, violent movies. Um, and they didn't do that with the Wallace mysteries. I suppose that they were aiming at not getting an X certificate. Um, because the thing about uh, supporting features is that if it had a higher certificate than the main feature, then you know you were you were excluding a lot of the audience. So they seem to have made made a decision to be milder than that. They could have gone that route, but also they do seem to be more interested in the puzzles, the mystery aspects of it, not so much the who done it aspect. Mm. The German films tend to have more more of you know, masked fiends who are revealed to be the least suspicious person. The the British films are m more often those um, twisted little uh, who's plotting, plotting to murder who, um, slightly film noir, although a very, very grey form of noir hmm. approach. Hmm. I mean, it's, there are, it, it's a little, I suppose, like the, uh, the Alfred Hitchcock Presents series in, in America, and that's why it's known as Edgar Wallace Presents in some places. Hmm. And it, it's interesting that this TV series does have the weird statue of Wallace at the yeah. beginning. Well, it's strictly, it's not a television series. It was okay. a series of um, supporting features made for ah. cinema release in Britain mm. that aired in America as a kind of fake television series. Ah. It's why there's a whole, um, or there are a couple of titles in these DVD sets that aren't Edgar Wallace films because they were added in to bulk out the episode run. Ah. And I think that this was, actually was the way a lot of British pictures or supporting features were first seen in America mm. as episodes of um, shows with titles like you know, Craft Mystery Theatre or whatever um, at the period when film drama was quite rare mm. and do you think the adaptations uh, do justice to the original novels or improve on well, them? they're very different I mean, it, it, they tend to use Wallace's plots mm. or sometimes they don't do that they use <laughs> tiny aspects of them and go their own way. They're very 
Um, I mean, the German films are much closer to the wilder, more fantastical aspects of Wallace's plot because he liked combining kind of gangster stuff with hooded mastermind stuff. So there's the whole dark house aspect to his thing. And one or two of the British films have that. There's one about a, a disfigured matinee idol that has a sort of Phantom of the Opera feel to it. Mm. And there are, there are several serial killers or mad stranglers on the loose. But they go for a very different... Uh, uh, they all relate to each other and they have a distinctive tone that descends from Wallace. But especially if you watch them all in a, in a bunch, they have their own little world as well, mm. which I, I find really interesting. Yeah, because you get a few um, reoccurring characters like Bernard Lee at Superintendent. That's right. it's, it's, and the strange thing is that they don't make more of that. Mm. Um, they never said it's never the new Superintendent Meredith mystery. <laughs> and and there are um, a couple where even Bernard Lee turns up again as a police inspector playing apparently the same character but with a different name. <laughs> um, and it's odd that they didn't do that, that they kept him around. I mean, because and some they have a different police inspector, you know, another actor will, yeah, will, will turn up in, with the same raincoat. Um, <laughs> and it's odd that they didn't push that as a, a thing. Um, but maybe they wanted Edgar Wallace to be the face of this series rather than Bernard Lee. Mm. Um, although Bernard Lee is one of the great, plodding, polite British police officers. You know, <laughs> um, it, it, you know you, he's the sort of link between... You know, the, the, the the Jack Warner or the Jack Hawkins characters from the 1950s and, and sort of Inspector Morse later, you know, they all have that same uh, deferential approach to, to crime solving. Mm. And and like you said, it is a, a great capturing of the 1960s on film, not only for locations that have changed significantly since, but also for other character actors of the time, people like Michael Goff, Harry H. Corbett, Nigel yeah, Davenport. I, that's one of the things I almost like most about these movies. In the, uh, and it's often those... There are a few people... You know, I, I think Michael Caine is in one of these for about <laughs> two seconds. And there are a few other people who went on John Ford, I guess that's one of the nice things that uh, these old TV shows and films are being finally released on DVD. That people bemoan, for example, you know, the loss of episodes of Doctor Who to skips. But at the same time, there are sh- there are films and shows like this that people didn't even know existed that are finally reaching a new audience. Yeah, no, I mean, it, I, I think I mean one of the things I'm, I'm very happy to be associated with networks, the company are putting this out because they put out so much archive material and you're right the difference between lost and filed away inaccessibly is is marginal if you have to be on the outside isn't it mm. um if something exists and you can't see it it's still not not any use to you <laughs> um and i i uh, yeah i've been going through a lot of these older shows yeah particularly things from the 1960s that are on um a bit before 
<laughs> we had a television set mm. in our family in some cases, or or uh, things that were on uh, you know, after my bedtime in the 60s <laughs> I can now finally watch. Uh, so there is still an enormous wealth of archive material, um, but you know, I, I find it enormously encouraging to rediscover. Mm. These films, like the German ones, were made in the 60s, 30 years after Wallace died. What... Which is strange, isn't it, that he'd had... Uh, there must have been some kind of publishing revival about the same time. Mm. It's too much of a coincidence for two major series, completely unconnected, to be launched from his, his books at the same time. And yet it's, it's not quite early enough for him to have gone out of copyright, mm. which is the usual reason why you get a big glut of... Um, yeah, of films based on somebody's work. But I guess it was an interest in his style of writing rather than the setting, because they're set in the present day rather than being period pieces. Yeah, no, it's not. They, uh, they, there have been adaptions of Edgar Wallace done in period, but I, 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 I think there was a BBC version of one of his plays in the 1980s. But that's it. Um, almost all of them have assumed that he's a contemporary writer. But I suppose that's... That, uh, nobody thought to make a Sherlock Holmes film as a period picture mm. until 1939. Mm. All earlier Sherlock Holmes films assume that he's a contemporary character. Uh, nobody made a Philip Marlowe film in period until 1975. <laughs> Again, previously, they just assumed that Philip Marlowe was, was working now. Um, just as, I don't know, if, uh, I suppose it's the, the film last year of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which mm. is set in the 1970s, yeah. is almost the first, uh, it, well, it is the first John le Carre adaption that decides he's so wedded to the Cold War that they can't change the date. <laughs> um, even the, the, the earlier TV version is set contemporary with its broadcast rather than at the time of uh, the events McCarry's writing about. Mm. Although, ironically, Edgar Wallace was responsible for a screenplay of an adaptation of Hound of the Baskervilles uh, in the 1930s. Yes, that's right, he wrote one, yeah. Um, and he did a lot of other odds. He directed a couple of films as well, although they're sadly lost. Mm. And he was one of the first writers to go into film production, mm. um, and he, he produced films based on his own work, uh, in the in the silent age, um, so he was obviously a very forward-thinking, or indeed a desperate workaholic <laughs> and chronically indebted. Yeah, it's a, a lot of it because he was a big gambling man, and he needed to keep keep up the flow in order to pay for his uh, losses on the racetrack. <laughs> And out of the episodes that Network have released on these DVDs, do you have a particular favourite? Yeah, I, the ones that, some of the ones I really like are to come in later volumes, mm. I'm going to say. Uh, I think Who Was Maddox is a cracking little little picture. And actually, I've got to say, I really like some of the ones that were tipped in <laughs> and aren't strictly Edgar Wallace films. Uh, the Man in the Back Seat and House of Mystery in particular really stand out. But I find that one of the things I like about this is that the quality is pretty even. Then mm. the bad side of that is it's sometimes really hard to pick out you know, individuals among them. Uh, but it's like you just shove one of these on uh, if you've got a free hour in the day because they all clock in at like 58 minutes. Uh, and you're pretty guaranteed to have something happen mm. that's interesting. <laughs> Indeed. Cool. All right. Well, thank you very much.
The first two volumes of the Edgar Wallace Mysteries, each containing seven films, are available now from Network DVD, with two more volumes to follow in September, and the series will continue throughout the autumn, with all 47 of the Edgar Wallace Mysteries being eventually available in the UK. To buy the series, please go to www.networkdvd.net. The Electric Sheep podcast was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch, and there'll be a new episode online next month.